Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Listening, hear me. I may not pass this way again. Hello and welcome to the Robert Lane Creative Careers Podcast, the podcast about creativity and making a living in the arts. This episode of the podcast features a conversation with actor Michael Simpkins. I'm on a mission to help you unlock your creativity. I'm sharing my journey as a musician, actor and writer, as well as offering online content like guitar and songwriting tutorials and chat about creativity. I'm doing this because I know how important creativity is for mental health and I believe everyone has a creative spirit. I want to help you find yours. Join me at robertlaymusic.co.uk and on social media as Robert Lane Music. Thank you. Hi, Michael. How are you? I'm very well. Very well indeed. Thank you. All things considered. Yes, all things considered being the point at the moment. As I'm sort of having this conversation with everyone I speak to on the podcast, but it's always interesting to hear. How has the events of the past few months affected your uh, your world? A lot, I imagine. Well, I think it's, I think it's affected everybody's world, of course. And... Uh, uh, I've always uh, had a tendency to self-pity. It's one of my most disagreeable um, uh, emotions, uh, and I try and I try and sort of hold back on it because the fact is, I think you know, as uh, I've been acting for forty-two years now, and um, I'm like most actors. When you get to your mid-sixties, you assume that probably you're going to slowly come in for a smooth touchdown on the runway and then end up in the nursing home. And hopefully it'll be a, a slow thing where you end up playing solicitors and uh, an old dodderers and people in shops and stuff. And then you do a touchdown and that's the end of your career. But I think what none of us uh, envisaged, I'm sure you would agree with this, is that the whole profession was going to slam into the side of a mountain overnight, which is what it feels like. And, you know, I, I can really have no complaints because obviously the ones I feel sorry for are some of the, you know, terribly talented young younger actors who are now missing out on what are going to, you know, what would be their, their best years. I mean, hopefully, you know, it can all recover and stuff, but it, it isn't much fun. But I, I obviously people of my age and 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 um, profession take some uh, solace from the fact that, in a sense, it, it, it hasn't happened at the worst time. Um, you know, it, it, much easier that it happens in your 60s than when it happens in your 20s, I think. And, uh, you know, I really hope for the sake of the young actors that I know, some of whom are immensely talented, and I'm sure you'll you'll have your own acquaintances as well, that, that it picks up as quickly as possible. But it's uh, it, 2020 is not a year I'm going to look back on with any fondness whatsoever. Yes, I can imagine. And were there projects that were... I think this is the, the thing that a lot of us have found. There were really exciting projects either halfway through or just about to happen or just just a little bit out of reach in the way that creative things are, which have then either been postponed or stopped altogether. Was that a situation you were in as well? No, to be honest, it wasn't. In that sense, I was lucky. I just finished a play at the Orange Tree in Richmond the, in, the, in the, the outskirts of London, which is a beautiful little venue. I'd just done a George Bernard Shaw play. I'd had the time of my life. Um, and I was due to do a, <clears throat> a telly, uh, one episode of a new ITV drama, uh, and that got uh, shunted, obviously, because of COVID. Uh, most wonderfully, I have to say, the production company very kindly paid me £103 a week all through the summer, um, which, you know, <laughs> there was a time in my pomp when £103 I would have barely looked at. But I have to say, it was like... Um, a life after a drowning man, you know, it suddenly seemed a vast sum, you know, getting £103 a week for sitting at home. So um, I was very grateful to them. And I finally uh, recorded the, uh, the the scene of the, the drama about five weeks ago. But boy, I felt rusty after six months of not doing any acting. It's funny how quickly you can lose your confidence. Um, I suppose all actors are like that. Perhaps some aren't. Some I know are bomb-proof, but certainly the, the the decent actors I know, you know, confidence is a very odd thing. And it really felt like I was stretching muscles I'd half forgotten how to use. And how different did the set look to usual? Were there COVID restrictions in terms of the way that people were having to behave? Yeah, the um, th- that was quite startling. Um, I wouldn't say that all the fun was sucked out of it, but nevertheless, there was there was a sort of, I wouldn't call it a panicky feel on set, but there was, I almost got the sense that 
you that everybody dreaded that COVID was going to knock on the door and burst in without warning at any moment. Um, so uh, although it was a delightful atmosphere on set, but obviously, you know, rehearsals tended, the rehearsal of the scene tended to be quite truncated because, and everybody's wearing masks and gloves and all that stuff. So, you know, <laughs> it feels like you're in a permanent episode of Holby City when you're rehearsing. And, 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 and then, you know, the usual the usual regime when the all the technical team are brought in and they see where where you're going to move and what technical things they have to do to realize the scene uh, to be recorded that was all very very rushed um and you know we didn't we didn't hang about you know lunch for instance was 20 minutes rather than the usual hour and nobody complained because mm. the fact was there was this sense that everybody had to get it done so it was it, 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 there was just a slight sort of edge of unease about the whole thing. And I mean, who can blame them? That's not to criticise the, the film company, which they, they did things in an exemplary fashion. But there is just that sense, I think, of everybody thinking, you know, it's so hard to get all people in the same room. And once here, you've got to get on with it because we've got to move on. That's right. To some degree, from sort of anecdotally how I've spoken to people, it would appear that the filming and TV side of things could be recovering a bit quicker than stages. I know that some places have, have tried to do stuff and then had to postpone because we're now in another lockdown. This is obviously a really important time of year with the pantomime that I know that you've been involved with those sorts of things over the years as well. We don't really know when that's all going to come back still, do we, I don't think? No, I don't think we do. I, I don't wish to sound doomy about it, and I, I, I certainly don't want to put a damper on things, but I... I, I do feel that um, probably midsummer next year is going to be the earliest that realistically we get off the deck. Um, you know, I met a neighbour in the street the other day. He said, "Well, it must be terrible for all you actors. I'm so sorry for you. Is there nothing that can be done? Can't you do any? Isn't there any theatre? You, I'm sure people would go to the theatre if there was some theatre on in the West End." I said, "Would you know?" He's a bloke about seventy. I said, "Well, would you go?" Would you sit in an auditorium of 400 people whose provenance you don't know any of them? And I said, despite, and apart from that, I said, would you go in on the tube? And I said, have you got the money to afford the tickets anyway? Of course, he he sadly shook his head to all three questions. So it's not just about the fact of, you know, whether you're prepared to sit with a lot of other people. It's also the mechanics of getting in and out and, and the economics of whether a lot of people have got money. So... I don't know how you feel about it. I mean, how do you, how do you feel the business is is shaping up as regards reopening theatre? Do you think it? Do you think summer next year is pessimistic? I don't think that's pessimistic because up until this year, booking shows, I was in an improv group as well, and I was responsible for booking all the groups, all the gigs for that. And I just haven't booked anything because it's that idea of you could book them, and then the city in the middle is in lockdown, so then you've lost three dates in the middle, and you've got to organise around it. The acting side of it, it's funny for me. I signed up with an agent right at the close of last year, got married in January, and then it was like, right, here we go. This is going to be the year now, and the agent was putting me forward for stuff, which made me laugh in your book, actually, that bit where your agent's putting you forward for loads of things, and you're kind of like, here we go, and we're still waiting. Um, and then, of course, that all stops, as you say. So just at a point where those things are, are picking up again, but, yeah, in terms of live performances, it's very difficult to say. I know some of the theatres in Birmingham are trying pantomimes this season, but it's such a gamble, isn't it? I, I remember talking to people I know who work in, in theatres themselves back at the start of the pandemic and sort of thinking, well, do you think you could redu- do reduced capacity shows? It's like, well, we, we could, but how do we make the money to pay the staff to – to do all of that stuff, it's not just about having a few people in the room so we can do the show. It's got to be that it turns over enough money to make it worthwhile. And as you say, when you don't know if people are going to turn out, it's very difficult. Mm, it is. And also, I think there's an element of, you know, does, you know, as an audience member, do you want to sit in a half full or a third full auditorium with sort of perspex screens between you and the next people? You know, it's a, it hardly makes you sing with joy, does it? So there's that sort of element to it as well. You know, particularly pantomime, as you've said, you know, it's a it's a it's a collaborative community experience where everybody's everybody's joining in, everybody's squashed, everybody's passing each other sweets and getting the ice creams at the interval and shouting out he's behind you. The idea of doing that in a sort of slightly desolate auditorium with tumbleweed blowing between the little knots of seats, it it's uh it doesn't doesn't feel a starter to me. Mm. Yes, it's true. But things do tend to, I was going to say, things are changing all the time. 
but then they're not because we're in the same situation we were in six months ago. No, we will get out. We we, we will get out of it. I'm sure we will look upon this as a bad dream in in three or four years' time. But um, uh, there are going to be a lot of casualties, and people have got to people have got to hang on in there. That's the problem, isn't it? Is the venues and the the creatives and all of the people involved behind the scenes as well. I know people who were. I, I know a guy who's um, a lighting technician at one of the West End theatres. And if there's no shows, there's no shows, there's no work. And they were furloughed for a bit, but how long are institutions going to be able to do that? Anyhow, uh, trying to be more positive about things, has it given you an opportunity to try some different things? I know that you write, anyhow, you've written books and you have the uh, newspaper column as well. Has there been opportunities for you to try some new writing in that sense? You haven't the space to do that. Well, um, in, in all honesty, I um, I haven't done a lot of new writing during the summer. Funnily enough, one of the things that I have been turning my attention to, funnily enough, uh, is the idea of a podcast, because that does seem to be the growth uh, industry at the moment. Um, so um, at the moment, I've got a scheme um, whereby I'm going to, you know, possibly tap my um, address book, which has one or two, you know, quite choice names in it, people who would help me out. Um, uh, and and try and uh, possibly use that sort of that that avenue to to get something um, something fresh moving. Um, you know, as regards to the writing, uh, I think also there's been a big there's been a big change in also the the certainly the newspaper industry. Perhaps not so much books, but certainly in the newspaper industry. I mean, when did you last see somebody reading a newspaper on a on a train, or at least one which wasn't free? Um, and and you know that, that I think also is 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 uh, is also symptomatic of a great change. You know that the the era of the the era of the sixty year old white middle class male, which I you know I, I have to now put myself in that bracket, is perhaps not. You know that's slightly past now. I think quite rightly, you know, newer voices are being heard, newer voices are being asked for. Uh, uh, you know, the temperature of the whole thing is much more geared towards people in their twenties, thirties, and forties. So that that has been something. You know, I, we would. You know, we're, we're talking about creativity, and one of the great dilemmas I always have with creativity is knowing when to hold on to something and when to, when to when to grasp something tight in my fist in the help in the hope that it won't go away and when to be counterintuitive and release the palm of my hand flat and let it fly off in the hope that something else interesting lands in its place and i think you know i think that's the trick of remaining creative uh, one of the things i've certainly found in in my life is that you know, I'm very, very closely identified with with the profession of show business, of writing and acting and singing and all that. And I think possibly nowadays I feel that perhaps too much of my identity was 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 rolled up in it. And you know, people used to say to me, you know, don't put all your eggs in the showbiz basket because she's a fickle mistress and she'll walk out on you one day. And I'm not in any way suggesting that's happened. But Certainly, it's something you know. Show business is something I've very closely identified myself with, and certainly by my age, the I, I, I'm I, I'm trying to be counterintuitive about it and think well rather than holding on to things that have perhaps now um, finished their natural span, to say goodbye to things and then wait for something else to come up. Um, that, of course, is easier said than done, and it's easier said than done now when everybody's scrabbling around for anything they can get. But I do believe that that you know that I think the whole podcasting thing is a certainly a, a, a really growth area of the business. I've heard some fantastic uh, podcasting, you know, including yours and and other ones by people in the business, and and you know they they're, they're throwing a fascinating light, and also they allow people to talk at greater length about about their their interests than you would get on a normal um, medium. So. Um, you know, I've always tried to reinvent myself. First, I was an actor for 30 years, and then the writing just fell into my lap. And, you know, that was a classic case of of something just dropping from on high when I was looking the other way. Um, I couldn't believe it when I became a writer. It just happened out of the blue. So I'm, I, I, I try to hold on to that theory now and think, well, you know, if if one door is closing, another will open. You've got to be receptive to it. Absolutely. The thing about the podcast that you touch on there, the, the reason for my starting one was was couple. I'm a big fan of them. So I was listening to a load of them more than I was listening to music at that point. 
more than I was probably watching television. So and all of a sudden you think, well, if I'm interested in, in something, perhaps that should be something that I have a go at. But also, uh, as you've mentioned, this idea of the conversations that can be had that can be very honest. And it doesn't matter if there's a fantastically large audience or not because we're making this stuff ourselves and putting it out. So a conversation between two actors or two musicians or whatever it is might not get a big enough audience for Radio 4. But it's going to get a few interested people, interested enough, enough of them to make it worthwhile doing. And as a person at sort of earlier stages of their career, there's so much about all of this art stuff which seems hard and secretive. And it's, you know, there's sort of this club of people who know what they're doing. And the great fun about talking to them is is none of them know what they're doing, actually, and they all feel the same. And that's one of the things I have enjoyed about reading your book, What's My Motivation, is this fact that it seems to me, unless I've misinterpreted it, that all the way through, whatever you've done and however much experience you have, it's not worth being grand because there will always be something that doesn't go to plan. And it's not worth taking it and perhaps yourself too seriously either. And certainly with a lot of the experienced people I've talked to, that's a thing that comes through. As someone with a bit less experience and certainly earlier on in my career, I've taken it all very seriously at points and yeah. myself very seriously. So when things don't work out, it can feel very hard. But actually you realise things pretty much don't work out. It's only a few of the things that really do. And as I think you're touching on, it's probably not the ones that you're expecting and things don't go in the direction you expect. So was that something that you've had to develop over time, this idea of – because you started at RADA and I don't know if going to RADA and, and the idea was you were going to be a, a very famous, very serious, successful stage actor. And you are, of course, but it hasn't always been possibly in the the way that you would have expected, if that makes sense. No, uh, I, <clears throat> my wife might disagree, but I, I try never to take myself too seriously. She <laughs> might have something else to say about that. But um, <laughs> when I'm storming around after yet another rejection, throwing teacups into the sink <laughs> and stuff, but... Um, I've tried never to take myself uh, too seriously in the in the business, but I think one of the one of the reasons for that is, <laughs> and please believe me, I'm not being falsely modest. You know, I don't think I'm an exceptional talent. I think I'm I think I'm a I'm a I'm a I'm a half decent actor, and there are many many half decent actors. You know, it, it, and and therefore, you know, it's not good to start getting above yourself. And a couple, it's funny. Uh, I don't know whether you find this. A couple of times in my career. Just a couple of times, I've, I've smelt stardom. I've either been in something that nearly really took off or I just had a, you know, I've had a, a, a spell in some really big show where suddenly a whole new audience is seeing me and I'm just being talked about. They've, these periods, may I say, usually lasted a matter of two or three weeks. I'm not talking like two or three years. And they've never really, you know, they've never really punched through in that sense that suddenly I'm top bailing and all the TV series have made around me. Far from it. but. I remember in my 30s, uh, one of these things happened and somebody, a friend of mine took me aside after a party one night, a very fashionable party on one of those boats on the River Thames where, you know, you go and everybody. And he just said to me, he said, Simo, he said, I hope you don't mind me saying this. He's just watch yourself. He said, you were talking an awful lot tonight. And he, he said it with enormous kindness, but it was just, I never forget it because of course immediately it sort of shook me up a bit, but I suddenly thought, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm in danger of starting to believe my own publicity that I'm now the most important man in any group of people with a glass of wine and a cheese straw talking about the business. Suddenly, you know, I'm, I must be careful that I'm not suddenly the one that thinks I'm the most important person here. So I do try to rein myself in when, you know, when, when, when I find myself getting pompous about the business. And in, in truth, just getting back to the rather thing, you know, I couldn't, I, when I applied to go to RADA, which is now back in the 70s, I always assumed, I'd, not, I'd done no research on it. You didn't do research in those days. There was no research to, to do. <laughs> so I assumed that RADA was going to be like Warwick University or um, Durham. You know, all my, all my friends were trying to go to university or Polytechnic, and I was going to go to RADA. And I assumed that there were going to be 250 places a, a year. And that as long as I filled in the uh, the application form and, and I could put one line in front of the other at the audition that I'd get in. And it wasn't literally until I turned up at the, at the door of 62 to 64 Gower Street, Bloomsbury, that I realised that far from being this sort of big establishment that I thought the Royal Academy of Dramatic Art would be, it was actually two converted houses <laughs> in, in the middle of, uh, of Bloomsbury. 
uh, and not in a very good state either. I mean, the place was a terrible, tumble-down, old, dilapidated place. You know, hot and cold running mice and the doors didn't work. So... It was so. It was only then that I thought, my God, there's a you know, this is a very small place. I may not get in, but by then it was too late. I did the auditions. I had to go back for a recall, and then I had to go back for a, a, a what was called the sort of, I think it was referred to later as the borderline workshop, where it was between me and two others, and um, I nearly didn't get in. And I wasn't very good for the last first four or five terms. You know, I was quite lonely. I was in the company of actors like Tim Spall. He was in my year. He was palpably a prodigious talent. You know, and as the as the as the as the course unfolded, these people seemed to pull ahead and really find their straps. And I was still feeling very provincial. And but just at the end of the course, I suddenly found my feet. It was like a, something turned. And you know. When people talk about drama school, you know, and they say, well, you know, can it teach you to act? No, it can't necessarily teach you to act. But it, I went in there at the age of 18 as a school kid and I came out feeling I was a, I was a, I had a chance as a professional actor. It's almost the mindset that it changed rather than any particular ability in me. Mm. Um, but, you know, it's mine has been a process of, of great good luck and. And, and fortune and you know most of the actors that I love tend to be actors that don't talk too much about it I'm thinking of you know some of the heroes of mine Richard Briers those sort of actors Paul Eddington you know Michael Horton I don't know whether you know who he is but you know these sort of actors that I grew up with um the ones that uh, you know they're not doing too much mouth they, they just go in and do a beautifully turned performance I always think that's a I always think that's a good thing to do because once you start believing your own publicity and and getting above yourself, the business pull you down with such rapidity, and you look such a prat. <laughs> it's interesting. If had you not had that friend who'd pointed that out to you, then at that that party, do you think there's a danger you would have gone down that route, or do you think you'd have realised hmm. it for yourself at some point? No, I do. I, I undoubtedly had that that that. You know, part of me wants to be around that pool at Hollywood. It, it's funny you talk about not taking yourself too seriously. I still think that that is a, you know, one shouldn't want, I'm not, neither of us are saying one should undersell oneself because the business is tough and you have to, you know, you have to look as if you mean it and you have to go in meaning it. But I do think I agree with you that in in, in British show business industry, having a sense of, of proportion about the whole thing is still quite a charming trait. Now, I'm not sure that it is if you go over to America. Uh, Friends of mine have been over to America, to Hollywood. They've tried that Tinseltown trail. Um, you, I'm sure, have got acquaintances of your own. And the feedback I get there is that um, any sense of modesty or uh, sense of proportion about your own ability is not understood over there. They they don't know what that means. I remember I once went over to the um, – I, I actually I, I sh- shadowed Imelda Staunton many years ago for her Oscar tilt when she did – the Mike Lee film Vera Drake. Right. And Imelda's a great mate of mine. And when she heard that, I, when I heard she was up for the Oscar, I, I mean, it was the most impertinent suggestion, but I said to her, would you and Jim Carter, her husband, would you allow me to shadow you for your Oscar weekend and write a big piece in the Daily Telegraph? Because I, ta- I think they'd take it. And the Telegraph, of course, bit my hand off and said, mm. yeah, if you can persuade. Anyway, Imelda came back to me and said, yeah, I've talked to her with Jim and we'd, we'd love to have you along. So I spent a weekend with Imelda. Um, I, I actually travelled in the limousine up to the Oscar celebration with her and Jim and their, their lovely daughter, Bessie. And um, I went to all the junkets and everything. And the overwhelming feeling I got from that, and I went to the Vanity Fair party with them afterwards, is that America is a very different creature. And I remember... I um, don't want to talk on too much, but I remember um, I, I also did a travel piece on on Los Angeles for the Daily Mail once, and they they put me in touch with the head of publicity at at um, Universal Studios, you know, where you can go and do the train ride and see the Jaws thing and the, all that. And um, I rang the woman up, and I, she said, "How many tickets would you like?" And I said, well, I, 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 my wife was with me at the time. I said, I'd like one, um, but it, 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 could I have two if that's not um, if that's not being presumptuous? And there was this pause. She said, why would it be presumptuous? I thought you were over here to cover this for a national newspaper. Why are you saying it'd be presumptuous? That's the whole point of you ringing me. I said, well, yeah. She said, well, we'll ask for two then. You can have two. You know, let's not muck about here. What are we? What are we playing? And it, that sense of me, sort of saying, "Well, would it be possible to have two tickets rather than one?" That was completely 
that was like a foreign language over there. You go in there, you 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 trumpet your abilities from the rooftops. You don't apologize, and you look like you really mean business. Does that have you? Had, does that ring true to you from your experience? Yeah, I think so. I, I've heard it from the other end as well. That the, just the way that the the British, I guess it's the medium rather than the people, respond to success as well. It's all right to be success up to a point. I mean, we're only seeing it recently with Marcus Rashford. It's a different sort of thing. But the fact that he's done these fantastic campaigns and now the media are trying to take it or certain newspapers are trying to take a, a chunk out of him. And it's like, well, where does that come from? Whereas the feeling yeah. is in the States, it is, oh, we celebrate people who are successful. We make rich people president because they're rich <laughs> rather than for any particular ability. It's an interesting cultural difference isn't it and I, I, from some of what you were saying there i mean I, I haven't met the people like you have but it made me think about the sort of the julie walters uh oscar nomination era where she went over and i did i think she did do that slightly british brummy thing and it seemed to work for her but she was quite keen that that wasn't going to be where she was going to spend too much time no. i think didn't didn't no. fit right well, uh jim broadbent as well uh you know who, who opened his uh, Oscar acceptance speech with the expression "Stone the Crows," which <laughs> I don't think was easily translatable. No. There, but nevertheless, you know, it was ty- typically self-deprecating of Jim. Uh, but you know, uh, Jim, I know a little bit, and he's a you know, he's obviously a man who I think could have made his home over there after the colossal success he's had, but has chosen to you know to to, to hang out in in Britain. Mm. But I, I also think that you know, I also think that self-deprecation, as long as it's not. Uh, as long as it's not overstated, I think, you know, what I do know about the business is that is that if it's between you and one other person, they will always take the person who they think will get on best with the rest of the company and pull his weight. And that certainly has helped me. I, I know that for a fact that people have, because people have told me afterwards, you know, it was between you and one other bloke, but, you know, people said that you would, you know, you you you'd hold the line you'd do the job and you'd be you'd be you'd stand you around in the pub afterwards and i so i do think that you know being a good company member being nice being respectful to people not pushing your own agenda too much it can be very very beneficial because because being popular without without warping your own personality in order to do that but being genuinely popular and nice and respectful to the other people in what's a very difficult industry i think it does go a long way it's being a team player, I think, as well, isn't it? It it's the idea that you're you're a team and it should be about making the thing as good as possible rather than building your own part in it as much as possible. I you know. Um yeah. and again in, in in your career in, in the book, which I've just read, is this thing that you then went from Rada into the sort of provincial theatre. I don't know if we can quite call it rep. I guess you were kind of catching the end of the the rep being the 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 sort of proving ground in the school for British actors. Um, no, it was it, it was rep. I mean, it, it was the last days of rep, but it was it was very definitely rep. Um, you know, mostly three weekly, four weekly rep. So it was you know, it's not unlike what you would see in provincial theatres now. You know, uh, uh, the, the the production standards were pretty good by that time. You got a, quite a bit of rehearsal. Um, you know, I only once glimpsed into the more of Weekly Rep. I, I, I saw Weekly Rep once. We were, I was in my first job at Canterbury, which was three Weekly Rep. Uh, you know, it was pretty threadbare and tatty, but there were some good actors and we had time to do it and all that. And one night, a party of us went down to Brinton on, uh, to Folkestone, to the Lees Cliff Pavilion, to see Weekly Rep. Uh, it was a play called The Shot in Question. Hmm. Subtitled "Murder in a Doctor's Surgery," uh, which is just a sort of old barnstorm of play that I grew up in Brighton when I was. I used to do my formative theatre going. There are always plays set in a doctor's surgery, and um, you know that, that I, I saw Weekly Rep because that's all what it was then, and that was uh, that really was a different world. Um, that, that 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 was something I I not only never. I never had, but I'm sort of glad I didn't have because that could destroy what little artistry you had. That was every man for himself, weekly rep. Just cling on until somebody gave you a line that you could recognise. Ah, uh, okay. Um, you talk to you, you talk to young actors now, and they don't even know what weekly rep is. Um, you know, I, I spoke to a friend, an older friend of mine, who said once he he said, "Oh, I, I did, um, I did, uh, I did forty plays in in uh, thirty nine weeks." 
I said, you did 40 plays in 39 weeks. I said, what did you do on the 40th? He said, well, what did you think? I had a nervous breakdown. <laughs> and he meant it as well. Yeah. Um, but nevertheless, the proving ground I did, you know, I, I, I was in I was in rep and, you know, rep, rep regional rep, every, every provincial town had a rep. Um, and it was a fantastic opportunity to learn your craft. I worked with guys like Alan Aikborn. I did a year and a half with Alan Aikborn, this company. I did three seasons at Bristol Old Vic. I did three at York. And it really did sort you out as a actor because you could make some of your t- worst mistakes and give some of your worst performances well away from public scrutiny, except for the locals who were usually very forgiving. And by the end of it, I wasn't a bad actor, but I was just starting to go. I remember I'd done a couple of plays at Harrogate Theatre, which is a lovely old venue up there. And then I was asked back about a year later to go and do some not quite such good parts. And I said yes. And I could just feel myself spinning back down into the vortex of being stuck in rep for the rest of my life and become one one of those old rep actors. Nothing wrong with that, may I say. But I knew I wanted something better than that. And then, luckily, the call came from Chichester Festival Theatre, where some young director nobody had ever heard of, Nick Heitner, was being given the chance to direct in the main house. And uh, for reasons best known to himself, Nick Nick got me in to play one of the leads. And that was probably, you know, that broke that possible spin back down into a life of what was essentially going to be provincial theatre which was sort of on its last legs by then. I'm sorry to interrupt the conversation at this point, but I wondered if I could ask you if you might possibly consider subscribing to the podcast, rating it and writing a review on your favourite podcast provider. Doing these wonderful things encourages the all-powerful algorithms to push the podcast to new people. It's also helpful when I'm talking to potential future guests, as it shows the people are listening. Thank you. Had you known Nick... For, for some other reason beforehand because I'm interested as well how much of your career has been has been hustle and how much has been people you've worked with at some point previously have got in a position where they can get you involved in something that's been a bit of a step up well <clears throat> it's been a, it's been a mixture I mean I I, I I know for a fact that Sam Mendes cast me in his West End revival of Stephen Sondheim's company because we played cricket together a couple of times and uh, and you know, and um, he'd taken my bowling for plenty, so perhaps he can't <laughs> in rehearsals. Um, uh, so th- 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 there are obviously people that you know that you get to know socially, and then they 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 ask you to. But I remember I did a play at the Bush some years ago, and the director, a wonderful woman called Sarah Estale, she she said to me on the first night after it was all over and it was quite a hit. She said the reason I asked you to be in this was that I was in the box office at the old Hampstead Theatre when you were in a play there with John Malkovich and you were always so nice to me when you came up to ask for tickets. Wow. And think and and I and um she wrote she wrote me a letter or something and I'd replied to it and she actually had the letter which she kept. Now I had no memory of, of returning this letter that she'd written about asking me something about the play or something. But I thought my God, I'm so glad I wrote that letter back because 10 years on that's got me the part, you know, between me and one other. Um, but uh, generally, I mean, Nick Heitner, I hadn't met before uh, before I worked for him. Alan Aikborn, I hadn't met before I worked for him. Um, so you just rely on, as as many of your listeners, this podcast will know, you rely on the personal chemistry that is formed at the interview. And that's an intangible quality. If you're too reticent, it doesn't work. And if you're too pushy, it often doesn't work. But what the hell do they want? You you go into that room and you have to rely on instinct, don't you? Yeah, a little bit of alchemy. And as you mentioned cricket, I've heard stories, of, you know, having some common interest completely outside of what you're having a conversation about. In fact, your book closes with that great thing, actually. Um, share, share that story with us about the, the Gilbert and Sullivan, Mike Lee connection. Well, that, that was probably the most, that was probably the most remarkable example. You know, when I was, when I was, a teenager, I was obsessed with the operas of Gilbert and Sullivan at a time when I should have been obsessed by sex, drugs, and rock and roll. And I missed out on all those three things. But I did catch, I did get to catch Bexhill Operatic Society's production of the Pirates of Penzance, which is it's a fair trade-off. Really. You only live once, and, uh, don't you? You have to you have to make these decisions. <laughs> you do in your life. These tough choices. And um uh, and uh, 
as a result of that, it was funny because when I went to Rada, I, I, I got asked to, to if I could sing a song, you know, out of the blue. And the only song I knew was a song by Gilton Sullivan. And I got in. And then at my, my interview for my first ever acting job at Canterbury, I'd done my two pieces, which was Pinter and Shakespeare. And I was standing there hoping they might take me. And then the director came down and said, we, we're doing panto this year. Have you got something you could sing that would be a bit more panto-esque? And of course I thought, you know, I can. It's I know a bit of Gilden's song. So in a sense, they've been sort of guardian angels to me. And then um, the story I think you refer to is, is, is when I appeared in Topsy Turvy by Mike Lee. And the only reason I got to hear about that, I was in the bar of the National Theatre. I think I was working there and Tim Spall came into the bar, who I was at RADA with, would have been then 25 years before. And I hadn't seen Tim much in that intervening time. And um, and Tim called me across. He said, oh, Simo, great to see you. Oh, lovely to see you, Sim. How are you? You know, all right. He said, you never guess what I'm doing. I said, well, so he said, I'm doing this film for Mike Lee. He said, it's about bloody Gilbert and Sullivan. He said, those two people, you were always bashing on about at drama school. You used to drive us mad. I said, I said, Mike Lee wouldn't be doing a film about Gilbert. He said, he's doing a film about Gilbert and Sullivan. He said, you've got to get on it. You've got to get in it. He said, but don't tell me, don't tell him I tipped you off. Otherwise, I'll really be in the soup. He said, he's nobody's supposed to know except the few of us that have been approached. So don't let on. Anyway, I got my agent onto it. I got an interview with Mike Lee. And um, I saw him and, and we were chatting away. He gave nothing away about the nature of the project he was seeing me for. It was just called Project Improvised or something. And uh, he asked me about my life and uh, and I got to my late, my mid-teens and he was writing down all my answers on this spiral notepad. And he said to me, okay, so you got to the age of 15, what happened then? And I took a deep breath and I said, well, at the age of 15, I became completely obsessed by the operas of Gilden Sullivan. And Mike Lee put his pen down, he closed the notepad and he gave me the look of evil. He didn't say a word, but his eyes said it all. He obviously knew that I was some schmuck who'd been tipped off about the nature of his film and was trying to profess an entirely bogus interest in the subject in order to ingratiate myself onto the project. And I could see the job going out under the door. <laughs> so I, I had to plunge on and I said, and I, I probably have one of the biggest collections of Gilbert and Sullivan records of anybody. And he took a very long look and he said, no, I have. That's all he said. And anyway, we plunged on and eventually I was able to persuade him that this was the truth. So he picked up the notebook bad again. He said, this is interesting. Go on. So I talked about the three, my, my three lost years in the world of Savoy operas. And um, lo and behold, Mike, Mike put me on the project, which is very good of him. And um, I had, you know, six fantastic months, you know, working on this extraordinary project with an utterly extraordinary director. So it's funny, isn't it, how these things come around, you know, you... You, you 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 can do all you can to try and prepare for an interview, but sometimes something comes out of left field, and you just have to you just have to you just have to keep your senses open and alert and grab the moment when it comes. Easier said than done. <laughs> and I'm I'm interested to know as well because you'd mentioned before that you the book I've read is a few years old now. Actually, I think two thousand and something. I think you wrote that. So how have things changed from the late 70s anyway? I think some of that sort of rep is not a world that's quite the same anymore. But also in the 10, 15, 20 years since the book was put out, have things changed again? Yeah, they have. They've changed dramatically. And um, I mean, about eight or nine years ago, I, I wrote a follow-up called The Rules of Acting, which is a sort of manual for acting, really. Um, but even that now is it feels slightly quaint. Things have changed so much. I did a play at Hampstead a couple of years ago where I was the only old person in the cast. And because it was in a studio, we all had to share the same dressing room, five of us. And I mean, I was sitting there. There's me, you know, this old duffer. Um, you know, I mean, I wasn't sitting in a silk dressing gown reading a copy of the stage, but I might, <laughs> I might have been, you know, I was sitting there and all the four young actors next to me, you know, they are, they were festooned with mobile phones, with mics, with laptops. Some of them had portable lights in their bags in case they suddenly got asked to do a cell tape. They were on Twitter. They're on, at that time, Instagram. I don't think it existed now. Instagram's old news. It's TikTok, whatever the hell that is. So 
what's happened now, and I'm sure you find this yourself being of a younger generation, is that young actors now have to be virtually their own their own recording studio, their own publicity outfit, their own makeup department, their own script reading department, almost their own corporation. Uh, this is unthinkable for actors of my era. And one of the big problems that, that we've got, you know, I'm 63 now, Julia's a bit older than me. And, you know, we can just about manage a self-tape, but it's it's really hard. And 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 I think that I think the I think the big thing that's happened is not only that obviously computer technology has revolutionized everything, but the, the problem is, and I think youngsters don't realize this, is that old people are essentially afraid of pushing the wrong button. That's what we're afraid of. Whether it's booking airline tickets on our laptop or our mobile phone to get train tickets or getting it, we're afraid of pushing the wrong button and the whole world will come to a stand standstill and our phones will explode. And youngsters know this isn't going to be the case. Yes. So they're just out there all the time. Uh, and that's why, that's that I think has been the big the big difference is this pro- proliferation of, of uh, technology, and of course, the lockdown has only enhanced it. I mean, I'm still I'm still going up for tele interviews, but they're all self tapes now, and it's such an odd world for me, and for any actors of my generation. I remember going up for Midsummer Murders once, and um, who was the wonderful woman who used to cast it? Beryl Purchase. Forgive me if that's the wrong name, but she was legendary, and I went in for this interview. And I, I, you know, she gave me a cup. Have a, have a look at these lines, dear. And I, I falteringly read these lines, sight read them. I'm not a bad sight reader. And I got about halfway down the page and she stopped and said, well, that's marvellous. I think that's marvellous. Don't you, everybody, would you like to do the part, Michael? I said, is that an offer? She said, oh, yes, that's splendid. <laughs> you know, I mean, those days have so gone now. You do self-tapes, you send them out. You never know whether they're going to be even seen or not. And then another one comes up, you have to learn the lines quickly, all that stuff. So it has been, I think the change in the last five years has been absolutely profound. Have you found that? Yeah, I mean, it's certainly self-tapes is the thing. And and this year as well, as you mentioned, I mean, from my point of view, being up in Birmingham, the idea of self-taping for anything anywhere is quite nice, actually. <laughs> and I think speaking to a lot of people in different walks of life, not having to go on the tube or on a two-hour train journey or whatever for a 10-minute conversation that might not go the way that you want it to. That kind of thing is really good. And the fact that we can do this, you can collaborate with people all over the world. Those things are really wonderful. Something I'm interested in over the times of your career that has changed perhaps is is a class-based thing. How how easy is it for working class actors at the moment to be getting involved in things? <clears throat> well, this, of course, is the hot topic. And, you know, I, I no longer know what class I am. Some years ago, I had reason, nothing to do with the show business. I had reason to call an old, an old school friend of mine who always rejoiced in the name of Lumper. That was his name at school, Lumper. His real <laughs> name's Joe, but we all called him Lumper. And it must have been 30 years since I'd spoken to him. He was a really good friend of mine. He lives in Wales now. And I phoned him and we had a chat And then we met for a drink in London, and he admitted to me over the pint. He said, I have to say, Simo, he said, when I first heard your voice, I nearly put the phone down. He said, you completely changed your voice. You've gone so bloody upper class. Now, to me, Robert, I I, I don't think I've changed it at all. But it's interesting how, obviously, there has been some um, recalibration of my own voice during the time that I've been a RADA actor and all that. So I... It would appear just on the evidence of Lumper's testimony, because he, why would he lie? He's nothing to do with the profession, that even if I hadn't known about it, I've obviously moved my class because my dad was a shopkeeper. You know, he was upper working class, uh, very much an artisan, albeit an artistic one. Um, but I've obviously sort of now moved up into a sort of what I'd call a sort of comfortable middle class environment. Um, and and. I'm on the board at one of the leading drama schools now, the audition panel, and and we are constantly not only talking about how to keep um, uh, interviewing in this age of Zoom, which is obviously what, what's needed now because we can't really have face-to-face meetings, but also the whole nature of allowing working-class people to have much more access to the academy. And, um, 
you know, that that is where I think it's so difficult for actors like me because we do carry a lot of unconscious bias with us. And and it's a phrase I hadn't heard until a couple of years ago, but I went on an unconscious bias uh, uh, workshop as part of my duty is as the, the being on the audition panel uh, at the drama school. And I was quite surprised by how, how many things I took for granted. I think of myself as a regular guy who's absolutely, you know, acceptable. Um, so I, I think that this is, this is all, this can only be to the good. The fact that, um, you know, as I'm sure you've identified, so there's so much stuff now about the fact you can't be a young actor now unless you've got rich parents because they're the only ones that can afford to go to drama school and take the, you know, the, the crippling periods of unemployment. And, you know, we have to try and address that. And I think it is being addressed now. The, uh, a friend of mine who's on a big feature film at the moment, she was talking to the producer about it. And the producer said, you know, we're trying to stop this thing that we get in, in the technical world now, where if they need somebody as second AD or somebody as a key grip or somebody as a gaffer, whatever those roles are, it's usually done by somebody else in the crew saying, oh, well, my mate George, he's, his son does it. He's, he's great. He's just finished that series. He'll come. I'll ask him. Mm. And, of course, what happens is, is that the business then stays in a close cabal of people who are all in the know. So how are you going to get work, you know, new people in? How are you going to get... Um, uh, ethnically diverse people in if they're not in that in if they're not in the in crowd to begin with so all that I think is being deconstructed and while it can seem very tiresome um, sometimes like do we have to really go through these processes of you know making sure that we're not making decisions on unconscious bias I think it's essential because otherwise the place will the whole profession will remain a closed shop What's your, I mean, can I ask what your – does that ring true with you or – Yeah, definitely. Um, the, the, the being able to afford to be unemployed thing I think is an important point for so many creative things. And we, we're only – I can't help but feel this whole COVID year has not really changed that many things but just highlighted a lot of them. So the precarious nature of a lot of creative industries, when they're able to do things, they can turn over a lot of money and they can be wonderful, but they're also taken for granted. So I think we've seen this year that they're taken for granted. Um, but yeah, as a as a youngish <laughs> actor or person trying to get into creative things, then yes, the idea that if there was a, a supply of money, that would make things an awful lot easier. When I'm recording my music and recording albums, I have to save up to be able to do that and try and rely on mates rates whereas if money wasn't an object i could you know and then i know that drama school and i didn't go to drama school i went to university did a music and drama degree but you know it was a consideration of of, can i actually afford to this even the three years that i'm going to be doing this when i could be getting off and doing other things so all of those things i think are difficult for for whatever you want to say working class actors or people who have to work <laughs> they might be yeah. middle class they might be upper class but people without some sort of support network i think there's a lot of creatives who are relying on a partner with a quotes proper job um yeah but i guess this has always been the case hasn't it to some degree i don't know if it was just the case that people used to get scholarships people used to get grants for their university education and those things which maybe helped but what, there's one of the things I was interested in asking about with the whole rep side of things. From my point of view, it doesn't feel like that proving ground, that school is quite there in the way that it used to be. What we have instead, I think, is the ability that people can do their own stuff. And for a lot of the creatives that I talk to, they think that that's vital. Um, it's that thing of don't don't tell people what you can do, show them. So if you're in a position where you can make your own short movies on YouTube or make your own music or whatever it is, or if you're a writer, then write things. You can put them on your blog. Again, as we mentioned earlier, it might not be that thousands and millions of people are going to see them, but at least you're doing it. <laughs> as soon as you've written something, you're a writer, I think is kind of that's right. the message that's come through from a lot of these conversations that I've had. Um, and I think that ties in with a lot of what we're saying, doesn't it? Not being too grand, not mm-hmm. being um, too picky. And just no. being creative and finding new ways of doing things. And I think the technology at the moment, while it's taking some things away from the creative industries, it is providing a lot more of a a, um, 
a democratic way of people just making stuff and getting it out there. I would agree with that. I think the worst time was probably about 10 years ago before this revolution in technology allowed everybody to 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 be the you know to 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 do the creative things that they want to. You know, there was that period when as you said the whole rep thing had gone and 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 yet the you know the world is becoming more unforgiving. You it's 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 more difficult I think now to survive without money than it was in my day. In my day you could sort of get by on not very much, but now that's much harder. I think you know it's it, it's a it's a more brutal financial environment nowadays. You know, rents are so high, travel costs are so high. Um, you know, people's jobs don't last as long as they used to. Uh, uh, wages have often been suppressed, except for the for the fabulously successful. So, I think that the worst period was about ten years ago. But like you, I do now see a flourishing of creativity. The fact that you can have your own YouTube channel, the fact that you can put it out there, you can write your own stuff. It's instantly available to the world. I think I think that in a sense we are coming out of that worst of times now. And while it's not easy, and nobody's suggesting it's easy, I do think now there is an opportunity to to. Uh, express your own creativity in a in a way that 10 years ago that wasn't available unless you had money and i really hope it continues because i've seen some fantastic stuff from friends of mine much younger friends of mine in their 20s who just put something out there and it's transformed their careers you just have to get on with it not talk about it too much as you said just get on with it do it and 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 give it your very best shot and don't take any don't take criticism too fiercely or praise too literally okay michael that's been fascinating thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me i've really enjoyed it lovely to spend time with you thank you for listening i hope you enjoyed that join us next time on the robert lane creative careers podcast until then please subscribe rate and review and have a look at robertlanemusic.co.uk to see the other projects i'm working thank you goodbye